0: let's turn in our copies of God's Word this evening to Romans chapter 1. The first chapter of the book of Romans verses 18 through 32. Romans chapter 1. Let's hear God's Word beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, They did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking God's help this evening, let's turn back to verse 23. As we continue our theme from this morning concerning religious idolatry, as Paul describes the moral and spiritual decline of the Gentile nations, that process began in stage one with their ingratitude, not responding to the light of nature, the revelation of the knowledge of God in creation and conscience. They don't respond to that by glorifying God as God and giving thanks to Him, and so they're given over to a futile and darkened heart and mind. And they engage in intellectual idolatry, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, they think they've got all the answers, and they ignore God's revelation. But verse 23, it leads to religious idolatry. They changed or exchanged or traded in the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Verse 25, the same thing. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. There's the intellectual idolatry. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen." Now we saw this morning the basic character of idolatry and of religious idolatry in particular, that it replaces God, it exchanges God for something else, it supplements God with something else in terms of worship. So either we're dealing with replacing God as the object of worship, worshiping someone or something else, or supplementing other objects of worship into the equation, So we worship God, we pray to God, but we also worship Mary and pray to the saints and kiss the Pope's ring and these kinds of things. Substituting or supplementing something in the place of God as the object of worship in violation of the first of the Ten Commandments. But we saw that religious idolatry also involves replacing or exchanging or supplementing God in terms of the way in which He's worshipped. In other words, the second commandment. Rather than worshiping God according to the ordinances and oracles that He's revealed in His Word, instead we begin to represent Him in ways that He has not condoned and has not commanded in His Word. The most flagrant example of which would be carving a graven image, a statue, a picture of God the Father or of God the Son incarnate or of God the Holy Spirit. Violating the principle of biblical worship or the regulative principle of worship. We supplement God's ordinances of worship and we represent God according to our own opinions, our own preferences, our own devices. This is spiritual adultery and spiritual pornography when it involves religious images. And it's really a heinous sin. There's an example of this in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 11, just a description that hopefully will bring us back in to the seriousness of this particular sin. Jeremiah 2, verse 11, has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods. But My people have changed their glory for what does not profit. So you can see God is saying, look, the other nations are faithful to their gods and their gods don't even exist. So the other nations, they're not going to... Change out their God. They're loyal to their God, just like uh, you know somebody goes to college or a certain university and they have their alma mater and they're faithful to that school. And they're you know anyway they have the bumper sticker. And these other nations are loyal to their false gods, but Israel is disloyal to the true God. They've changed or exchanged their glory for what does not profit. They think they're very wise in in doing this. They think it's a good deal. This exchange is going to work out well. God says it's not going to be profitable. It's not going to work out well. It's going to work out horribly. Be astonished, O heavens, at this and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. God's the fountain of living waters. God is the only living and true God. We ought to come to Him, worship Him, trust Him, love Him, choose Him, embrace Him, rely upon Him for everything. And yet we supplement Him. We dig up, we, we dig down into the, the dirt. We try to make our own cisterns. We try to fill them with water. We eventually abandon God and we're left with these broken cisterns that hold no water. Vain, profitless adultery of the heart. This is religious idolatry. It's basic character. We saw its various aspects. We saw that it involves will worship because we're worshiping according to our own will rather than the revealed will of God. We saw that it involves image worship as our text describes. Trying to make God more real, more knowable more present by having these images and these tokens, these religious icons and statues and practices and ordinances that God never commanded whatsoever, just like the golden calf. Moses is up on the mountain. We don't know what happened to him. We need something to fill in the void. It can't be filled just by faith, trusting our sovereign God in our midst through His ordinances. No, we need to make a golden calf. And these images, even to this day, are a problem in the Christian church. Thirdly, we saw it involves creature worship. Of course, to worship God by way of images is to bring created things in between us and God, that those things, those images become, as it were, recipients of our worship in some sense, but... It really leads to creature worship on an even greater scale throughout human history. People worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars. In the Roman Catholic Church, worshiping Mary, saints, angels. Worshiping the Pope by ascribing unto Him divine attributes and submitting our wills to Him implicitly as some infallible standard of truth and righteousness that only God and, and Christ Himself being head of the church ought to have that prerogative. Worshipping these intermediary individuals, intermediary things that are brought between us and God to, to fill in the gap. And we saw that that's really devil worship. In fact, the word demon in New Testament Greek sometimes carries the idea of an intermediary, lesser god that comes in between people, human beings, and the, the big god, the ultimate god for the pagans, you know, Zeus or whatever. For us, the triune God. You see and again in the Roman Catholic Church that it is a doctrine of devils that dominates that particular church. It's not actually a true church. It's a synagogue of Satan. And these intermediary entities, Mary, the saints, various angels, and so on, these are, as it were, demons. Demons have come up with the, this whole system. And really, the, the whole idea of a demon in New Testament Greek includes that idea of a false mediator between God and man. So it involves devil worship. It involves self-worship. Notice, corruptible man makes an image made like unto corruptible man. We recreate God in our own image. Dead sinners create dead idols. And that's the idea, by the way, of corruptible and incorruptible. You could easily translate this as mortal and immortal. That's the same idea here. Corruptible means mortal. Incorruptible means immortal. So human beings who are dead and depraved in trespasses and sins, dead sinners, are creating dead gods, corruptible gods, mortal gods that cannot save. And so we we make God, we fashion God into our own image, and it creates Dead worship, a deadening effect. The worship of the church becomes corruptible and mortal and the spirituality of the church is deadened. The more we try to liven things up with our own innovations in worship, the deader and deader and deader we become. Thinking ourselves wise with all of our pragmatic innovations, we have become fools. Now, we've already said that this religious idolatry comes as the fruit of, of intellectual idolatry so we're not going to we're not going to dwell too much on that particular point except to say that in the history of our own culture in the history of our own nation and in American church history you, you do see something of this relationship of cause and effect that when the Bible is not held in high esteem when unbiblical ideas and worldviews and enlightenment thinking of holding science to be superior to the Bible on certain questions. Whenever you see that type of intellectual idolatry gaining ground in American history, you also see the, the price tag that Christians put on biblical worship diminishing and the value that they place upon biblical worship. Because of course, if we don't hold the Bible in high regard on the big doctrinal points of creation and redemption and all of these things, if we're beginning to question God's Word and incorporate humanistic thinking, big surprise that the church has very little regard for biblical worship. When we think ourselves to be wise in these other areas, pretty soon our lack of commitment to the Bible leads us to expand our territory in terms of human innovation in the worship of God. And you can see that especially in the 20th century where you've seen all kinds of innovations that are really off the charts. I mean, there are practices that you know arose in the 1800s and early 1900s practices that we would say are unbiblical and they shouldn't have been brought into the church. But if you look at the innovations that have come in the middle, and toward the end of the 20th century, and now into the 21st century, these aren't just subtle things that are coming into the life of the church. You know, it's not just somebody playing a piano or something during the hymn, or, you know, we're talking about unbelievably unbiblical worship. And, you know, you can see these things on YouTube, the, the circus church, and a lot of these things people are bringing into the worship of God to, to to attract unbelievers, and it's almost unrecognizable. It's not just biblical worship with some things that shouldn't be there, but it's almost unrecognizable in many many churches. You wouldn't even know that you're in a worship service, and it's more like a concert or some type of uh, theatrical production, or you know the, the pit orchestra almost unrecognizable and you can see how the underpinnings of a biblical worldview have been eroded and intellectual idolatry has taken hold on our entire nation and you see the fruit of it now that unbiblical worship is is on steroids. It's, it's, It's shocking. So that's something of the origin of religious idolatry. But our fourth point which we hasten to is the impact of religious idolatry. What is the impact of this sin? Well, first, its impact on humanity as a whole, on human culture and human society. The Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, that man is the image and glory of God. Now, in that passage, it's speaking of men and women, but I think we can just Glean the general principle and say that both men and women, in a gener- more general sense, are the image and glory of God, Genesis 1.26, God created man, male and female, in his own image, so we are god 's image and god 's glory, and we have been created, our chief end, children we 've been created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever so we've been created in a unique way to reflect God we have knowledge righteousness holiness the animals don't have those things we have this rational religious nature that God has given us so that we can know God and have a relationship with God and mankind is is a beautiful creation of God to reflect his glory to glorify and enjoy him forever but religious idolatry strikes at the heart of our created design of our chief end of who we are and it really debases man because what happens is we're supposed to be reflecting God's glory through our knowledge of him our relationship to him and our righteousness and holy conduct we're supposed to be reflecting God as his vice regents with dominion over the created world But instead, we're making images to reflect the divine being. We're making these four-footed beasts and insects and all of these kinds of things. Even statues, dead lifeless statues of human beings. We're making these things as supposed reflections of God's glory. The image of God. But that's what we're supposed to be. We're delegating our greatest privilege as creatures of God to these dead, dumb, mute, deaf idols. It degrades and debases human nature. Many of us are familiar with the Romans Road, the various scripture passages in in the epistle to the Romans that lead you through the truths of salvation. Uh, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is the glory that we're falling short of? Of course, we're never going to even... If Adam had never sinned, he never would have attained to the glory of God. Never would have been on par with the Most High God. But the glory that we're falling short of there is the glorious image into which we've been created. We've been created to reflect God's glory in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And and instead of doing that, we've fallen short. We've actually, verse 23 of our chapter... We've changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. We've taken the glory of God, the glory that we've been created in order to reflect, and we've exchanged it. We've gotten rid of it. And Romans 3.23 and Romans one twenty three are meant to be connected. There weren't chapter and verse divisions in Paul's day, of course, but, but it's an easy way to connect these verses Romans one verse twenty three, man is exchanging the glory of God for idols. Romans three twenty-three, man has therefore fallen short of the glory of God. Instead of reflecting God's glory, we delegate that authority to these dead idols. Now, when man's created design and purpose and really his his significance on planet Earth is undermined, that opens pandora's box for the undermining of the creation ordinances so we're going to see in romans 1 that there's a progression of decline or there's a decline that takes place and when man's chief end and purpose and creative design by god is undermined don't be surprised then that the next stage of decline undermines marriage And the sexual relationship between husband and wife, sexual purity, undermines the family, undermines the the principle of biblical work ethic and Sabbath rest. Don't be surprised throughout the rest of this chapter that you're going to see. And don't be surprised in our own society that flowing out of our rejection of our chief end to glorify God, our rejection of the creator-creature distinction and God's prerogative as the sole object of worship and the sole author of all methods of worship, don't be surprised if that has a domino effect then upon all of the creation ordinances. Worship is that essential to the nature of man that religious idolatry strikes at the foundation of civilization itself. But it also has an impact on Christianity and on the Christian church in particular. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 24 says that in a healthy church, in a revived church, in a church where the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit is active, an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes into the assembly and he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed and so falling down on his face he will worship God and report that God is truly among you." When innovations in worship and supplements in worship, either the object or the method of worship come into the church, as I've said, it brings spiritual decline and deadness because the source of our life is God. When we supplement Him, when we drive Him away, There goes our life and our length of days. We need God at the center. Just like the children of Israel in the wilderness, God was at the center. The tabernacle was in the center. Everybody was encamped. All the twelve tribes were encamped with God at the center. And when God is no longer at the center, when we push Him out, when we distribute His attributes and prerogatives to other things, other entities, other individuals, and when we supplement His worship so that the means by which he says I'm going to be present and communicate my presence and communicate life and regenerate and convert people and sanctify you and you've been alienated from the life of God, but I'm going to give you new life by my Holy Spirit through these specific ordinances of public, private, and family worship. When we negate those things or supplement them or push them off to the side, what happens? What happens? Spiritual deadness, spiritual decline, big surprise. We see it in our culture, we see it in the church. But it's not only that. Religious idolatry offends God in a big way. And it causes Him, if we can speak that way, it causes God, according to His covenant, to bring great judgments upon the church. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 15 this is the Song of Moses. It talks about how God blessed His people in countless ways, redeemed them, and there was no foreign God found among them. Verse 15, "...but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked." They got lazy. "...you grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese." Then he forgot God who made him, "...and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation." They provoked Him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked Him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. Now, they they said it was for God, but it was really for themselves and really doctrines of devils. Demon worship. Satan was clapping his hands, rejoicing at all of it. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals. What a great translation. That would make a great sermon title. New arrivals. Beware of new arrivals in the Christian church. If somebody comes along with a new doctrine, with a new worship practice, a new worship method, a new object of worship, beware of new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. What a beautiful statement in the midst of this diatribe against idolatry that. When we fall into idolatry, we're forgetting as the church the God who fathered us. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has brought us forth by the word of truth. The God who loves His church. The God who made His church to be united to His Son. He, he, he wants to, if we can say it that way, He wants to bless His church. We've forgotten Him. The God who fathered us. And when the Lord saw it, He spurned them because of the provocation of His sons and His daughters. And He said, I will hide My face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked Me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved Me to anger by their foolish idols." but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. So God says when the church doesn't take biblical worship of the biblical God seriously in spirit, in truth, from the heart, in accordance with His commandments, when we don't do that, He is provoked to jealousy. He is angry with us as a loving yet angry Father against our sin. And He brings chastisement. He brings judgment. And He causes other nations, those outside of His covenant people, to gain the upper hand against us. He provokes us to jealousy, as it were. He brings us under the hammer of affliction and of oppression. A fire is kindled in my anger. Verse 22. And shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. So he's going to judge his people not just with the foolish, unbelieving peoples around us. We see that happening. But he's going to judge us just with an outpouring of his own wrath upon, upon us, upon our situation, upon our economy, upon our living conditions. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within for the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men, had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand. In other words, the only thing that keeps God from utterly obliterating the church and its idolatry is the consideration that the enemies of God would gloat and boast in it. So for God's own reputation, for His own sake, not because we deserve it, He's going to pick us back up, dust us off, and restore us. But, wow. Wow. This is a great and mighty display of God's judgment that we see described in this passage. Is there any doubt that this is why our nation is the way it is today? The next time that you're faced with a question of biblical worship, don't fall into the satanic temptation to think, well, this is just a subtlety. This is not a big deal. The question of whether God prescribes this or prescribes that. Or whether we should incorporate something into the worship of God. Or why does our denomination take this stand or that stand? After all, we all love Jesus. And and that's true. But this passage would suggest that every question of the one we worship, the way we worship, first and second commandments and the ten commandments, all of these questions are important And to the best of our ability, according to our conscience, informed by God's Word, we have to do what is biblical and ignore and forsake everything else. Because the life and well-being of the church covenantally, in the covenant of grace, not works, but covenantally depends on it. If we compromise, and somebody comes in and says, well, we need to compromise on this point because you see understand, take them back to this passage, that compromise will lead to the destruction, for all we know, of the church. Of this church, of this denomination. If we budge on this issue, prepare to be wasted with hunger. Prepare to be bitten by serpents of the dust. Because that is what God is threatening here in the Song of Moses. And you say, that's the Old Testament. Yeah, but the New Testament saints in Revelation, they're singing the song of Moses. This is important for us to take heed to this judgment that religious idolatry brings about. Well, the impact of religious idolatry also has an impact upon eternity. Eternity. Scripture is clear that no idolater will enter the kingdom of God. Idolatry is a sin. Idolatry is a scandal. We can differentiate between different degrees of idolatry. I mean, Jesus says that if we've lost our temper, we've committed murder. Now, when the Bible says no murderer will enter the kingdom of heaven, it's not saying somebody who lost their temper can't go to heaven. But what it's saying is that there are certain degrees of offense against God, that if this characterizes our lives, that we will by no means enter The kingdom of God. Now that's not to say if you lose your temper all the time and you're an angry person as a general rule that that you're definitely going to heaven. But the point is these lists that we find throughout the New Testament which describe what we might call damnable sins. Sins that if you see them in yourself or another person that this is a huge red flag. You can't have a credible profession of faith and be impenitent in these specific areas. There may be more of those areas, but these are the ones that the Bible says we ought to pay very close attention to in this regard, and idolatry is on that list. Now, I'll, I'll read a couple of these in a second, but we're dealing here with what our confession would call gross idolatry. We're not dealing here with an intramural debate between Christians among whether there should be you know, a little old lady playing the piano during the psalm or something like that, or whether not that that's a small thing, but comparatively, comparatively, that we're not saying people go to hell because they believe that instruments are valid in New Testament worship. We're not saying people go to hell because they sing hymns. We're saying those are important issues that we can't compromise on lest the church as a whole fall down a path of decline. But in an individual person's life, there is gross idolatry that is a red flag that this person does not have a credible profession of faith. And that would be specifically in terms of the first commandment, people who are worshiping entities other than God. Okay, so if you're praying to Mary, this passage applies to you. 1 Corinthians 6.9 Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. If somebody prays to saints, prays to Mary, worships statues and images, bows down to them, and so on and so forth, okay, they do not have a credible profession of faith. I don't care what else... You want to say about the person, and it's not my judgment. I'm just explaining what the verse is saying. That if you have a gross idolater, not someone who just is not up to speed on a specific question of which elements of worship should be conducted in in what manner, okay? We're not dealing with that. We're dealing with gross idolatry that would keep you out of a credible profession of faith and would ultimately keep you out of heaven. And that would be if you're worshiping someone or something other than God or in your worship of the true God, you are literally serving idols. Icons, pictures, not just, well, someone believes it's okay to watch the Passion movie. That's a problem. But we're talking about people that have pictures of Jesus. They're lighting candles. They're bowing down. They're taking hold of the cross. And, you know, all these kinds of things. That is idolatry. If you bow down and worship the Mass, if you participate in the Mass... Now, there may be a converted person who's doing that. Eventually, God will bring him out. But if you participate in the idolatry of the Mass that says that bread and that wine is Jesus and we need to bow down to it because it is God in the form of bread and wine, you don't have a credible profession of faith. No idolater will enter the kingdom of heaven. Ephesians 5, verse 5 For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ, and of God. Here we're dealing with covetousness that is idolatry, how much more idolatry itself. So, this sin has a huge impact on humanity, on Christianity, and on eternity. Now, my final point, as we look at religious idolatry, it's antidote. It's antidote. What is the cure? What is the antidote to religious idolatry? It would be pointless for us to discuss this topic and then end here without talking about how to overcome it individually and corporately. How do we overcome? How do we put this sin to death? How do we bring reformation in the life of the church? Or not saying that really we're the ones who bring it, but... But what are we talking about here? What's the antidote? First, regeneration. Regeneration. Dead sinners create dead idols. So the solution to replacing, exchanging, supplementing God and His worship is regeneration. If the church is filled with unconverted people, it is not going to tolerate spiritual worship. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. How can he? He's he's blind. He's dead. So without regeneration, people are not going to be able to see God, see Him who is invisible by faith. They're not going to be able to commune with Christ in the Lord's Supper. They're going to come up with all kinds of things to substitute the the true god out and put something in his place that is accessible to the natural unregenerate man so the real solution to idolatry fundamentally is not necessarily going out and proclaiming here are all these unbiblical additions and alterations in worship here are, here's a bunch of paperback books to address each one of those and here's why we need to be biblical in this area of worship and that area of worship and let's refute Roman Catholicism here and here and there. Those things are important but fundamentally we need to preach the gospel because if people are converted they're not going to tolerate unbiblical worship and the more sanctified they become the more alive they become the less they will tolerate dead idols and human innovations. And many of us can testify to this, that God converted us, and all of a sudden we began, even early in our Christian life, to feel uncomfortable with some of the things that were happening in worship, and we were drawn to a simpler, more biblical form of worship without necessarily anyone coming up to us and debating us and winning the argument. Uh, It's just the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that gives people an appetite for true biblical worship. And you can see this in 1 Peter 1, verse 3 and following. Listen to this. This is is powerful. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we were dead sinners wallowing in it, God raised us up from the dead through the resurrection power of Christ, verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So He took us from being carnally minded, earthly minded unbelievers to people who rejoice in our heavenly inheritance. We're now heavenly minded saints whose citizenship is in heaven and we don't focus on the things of this world, we're focused on that eternal inheritance heavenly inheritance reserved for us. Verse 5, "...who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time." So now we're walking by faith. God's strengthening our faith. He's enabling us day by day to walk in faith. The power of God is evident in our lives through faith. Verse 6, "...in this you greatly rejoice." Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You've got a born-again Christian counting it all joy through times of trial, growing strong in faith, persevering by the grace of God. Now, listen to the fruit of this. He mentioned Jesus Christ, verse 8, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see Him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody who fits that particular description is going to have it all figured out about what New Testament biblical worship should be. But what I'm saying is, when there is a person who fits that description, who is walking by faith, who is in love with an unseen Savior, and that's the essence of their Christian life, that they're walking by faith in love with an unseen Savior, and they're able to rejoice and be full of joy and glory, inexpressible. They're full of all these things by faith without seeing Him. That person, when they do encounter biblical worship, at worst is not going to complain about it. it. At best is going to say, "You know, where have you been all my life? A regenerate person. Is going to embrace biblical worship to one degree or another. Again, not trying to keep a scorecard of every specific question of biblical worship, but if we want to see an end or a great reduction of religious idolatry, we need to see regeneration, which means we need to be evangelizing, we need to be discipling, we need to be focusing not on specific questions of biblical worship so much as focusing on the power of the gospel and then teaching and discipling those whom God is saving and adding to the church so if we continue as a church in America a visible church to be characterized by largely unregenerate congregations who demand to be satisfied by unbiblical worship probably we won't make a ton of progress in this area. So we need regeneration. Second antidote to religious idolatry is revelation. Revelation. How did we get into this mess in the first place? Because we we thought we were wise and we became fools. So we thought we had all the answers. We strayed from that sola scriptura, no exceptions principle, and we supplement God's revelation, we replace it, we substitute for it, we have our own ideas and innovations, we need to get back to the Bible. And so again, the way we combat religious idolatry within the visible church among fellow evangelicals and Reformed Christians with whom we may disagree is not necessarily fighting battles of specific issues on every front, but of joining together with biblical Christians. If somebody is serious about the Bible, though they may disagree on one point or another, we need to cultivate our unity in Christ and feed into that seriousness about the Bible in the lives of other people. Because the more biblical people become, the more biblical their worship will be. The more they submit to Christ in His Word in this area of life, that area of life, all these different areas, it will pave the way so that they eventually submit to Christ in this area. And maybe it's not a matter of submission. Maybe they're just, let's face it, we all have blind spots. This is true of me. This is true of all of us. That the more we learn about different areas of biblical truth and application, the more it helps us maybe to find those blind spots and to respond accordingly. So we need to get back to the Bible. We need to focus on the Bible. So if you can read between the lines in the first two antidotes, we need regeneration, so we need to focus on proclaiming the gospel. And we need biblical revelation, so we need to get back to the Bible in general, in a whole host of ways. And organically, as the, as we're sanctified by the word of truth, that cannot but improve the purity of God's worship. And I don't need to tell you that, because as we've seen an upswing, an uptick in reformed theology, in A biblical understanding of the doctrines of grace in the evangelical world. As we've seen churches improving and gaining more ground in their knowledge, there are many churches that their worship is starting to head upstream against the cultural decline that we're talking about here. And there are many churches that are starting to sing the Psalms. There are many churches that are starting to incorporate a more biblical approach and even to speak about the regulative principle of worship. Again, we wouldn't necessarily agree on every point, but there's positive progress when people get back to the Bible. I mean, what was, what was the Reformation? It was back to the Bible. And it was a Reformation of worship precisely because They went back to the Bible. They went back to the Bible to deal with the issue of how we're saved, how we're justified in the sight of God. And then they got so excited about all the other things they found in the Bible that it naturally impacted their view of worship. And it was a reformation of worship because they just were in love with the Bible. So we need that. Thirdly, the third antidote to religious idolatry is separation. Separation. Now, this is a tough one, and I don't plan to say, of course, everything that could be said here, but the Bible does tell us to separate from all unbiblical practices. That is a command from Scripture, and you can see it in various places. 1 Corinthians 5.11, he says, uh, "...don't keep company with anyone named a brother who is, among other things, an idolater." And certainly, if, if we're not supposed to keep company with one idolater... An entire assembly of idolaters were not to be doing that at all. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, he says, uh, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. We saw that this morning, and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Are we able to reckon with a sovereign, Almighty God being angry and at cross purposes with us? Obviously not. Second Corinthians chapter six talks about not being unequally yoked, and specifically, it goes into this idea of that the, the temple of God should not be united to idols. The temple of God should not be united to idols. And you as an individual are a temple of the Holy Spirit, as is the church collectively. We can't have fellowship with idolatry. We need to come out, as it says, come out from among them and be separate. Don't touch the unclean thing. So, what does this mean? It means on an individual level, that in terms of uh, what you might call a line item veto, or if there are things in the worship service that you can't in good conscience do because they're not commanded in scripture, then you have a duty to abstain from that aspect of the worship service in the church where you're worshiping. And you have a duty to not engage in anything in public worship that God has not commanded you to do. No elements of worship that are unbiblical, that are unfounded in scripture. You ought to abstain from those things. And we've tried to weed out anything that's unbiblical maybe we failed if there's anything you really have a duty in your own conscience to abstain from anything that is not biblical worship of the true biblical god it also means you shouldn't participate in any assemblies of false churches you shouldn't participate in any type of meeting of the roman catholic church any type of mass that is somehow attached to a wedding or a funeral It could be really tough to not be there, but you should not be present where there is idolatry taking place. You become a party to that idolatry. So you need to separate yourself from any practices, abstain from any practices that are not founded in the Word of God, and you need to join the local church with the most biblical understanding of worship according to the second commandment. So, It doesn't mean that you should not join any church if there's something in the worship that you can't do, but you do have a duty to join the local church with the most biblical understanding of God and of His worship. Doctrine, worship, discipline, and government. Sometimes we use those categories. So we need to separate in those ways. You find the most biblical church, maybe there's something you abstain from, but you need to separate from idolatry to the best of your ability in the providence of God because the second commandment in closing the second commandment tells us that in connection with biblical worship is this idea of intergenerational continuity it's in connection with the second commandment that God speaks of his loving kindness upon generation after generation to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments in this particular category and He speaks of the curse of God upon us when from generation to generation we don't keep this commandment. So this is something, again, there are different views on certain issues. We need to wrestle with those and come to a biblical conclusion. But I'm speaking in general terms. This is important. If you've never studied biblical worship, if you've never studied why we do the various things that we do in our elements of public worship. You need to study this young people, single people. You need to understand how God is to be worshipped so that you can teach your family, so that you can pass this along. This is very important. It's vital. We don't want our children falling prey to idolatry. We don't want like the trend in so many reformed Churches nowadays, people are returning to the Eastern Orthodox Church. They're returning to Rome. They're, they're headed in the wrong direction. We want to, to know these doctrines, to teach these doctrines, and the Lord will bless these doctrines, even to the thousandth generation. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are our Father. You have begotten us individually as believers and collectively as Your church. We pray, O Lord, that You would give us hearts that beat for glorifying and enjoying You. We pray that You would enable us to pursue our chief end, to seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness. We ask that You would give us these renewed, regenerate, sanctified hearts that would be in love with an unseen Savior and would rejoice at worship which is by faith and not by sight even as we await that glorious day when we shall see Him face to face. We pray in His name. Amen.